This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the Basic Podcast. Today's episode is part two of Psychiatric Emergencies by Dr. Shana Gifford and Dr. Les Zun. This episode will talk about how to treat patients who are depressed without being suicidal, how to interact with the patient's family members to do the best thing for the patient, and Dr. Zun's recommendations for drugs and dosages for agitated patients, as well as a few other topics. In part one of this series, Dr. Zun disclosed consulting work for Teva Pharmaceuticals and Alexa Pharmaceuticals, and that disclosure still applies. My disclosures are the same. I have none, and Dr. Zun's discussion of drugs he consults on does not imply endorsement by myself or the EM Basic podcast. Before we start the episode, I want to let you know that EM Basic may be going on a little bit of a hiatus. In the next week, I will be deploying to Afghanistan for four and a half months to help staff the ED of a well-established hospital. Believe it or not, the person I am replacing has told me that he has excellent internet access, so I may be able to keep recording episodes in my downtime. However, nothing is guaranteed regarding internet access and the time I'll have available, so you may not be hearing anything from me in basic for the next few months. I want to thank everyone who has contributed scripts for recording. If I have internet access in Afghanistan and enough time, I will try to record as many of them as possible. I am scheduled to return in mid-February, and my new assignment is at San Antonio Military Medical Center, where I did my residency. They have been very supportive of the podcast, so I'm excited to get the chance to publish lots of new content when I get back from deployment. One last disclaimer before we get started. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views of Britain's Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Shawshank EM Residency Program. Now let's begin Part 2 of Psychiatric Emergencies with Dr. Shana Gifford and Dr. Les Soon. So with our depressed patient, let's say they're not endorsing SI, and they're acutely depressed. They've never been depressed in their life before. What sort of screening test do you consider for this patient? Do you worry about their thyroid? Do you get a CBC and look for anemia? What do you consider in the acutely depressed patient? So a patient that doesn't have a history of psychiatric illness, that comes in depressed, I think it's reasonable to do a medical workup on these patients. I think that it's reasonable to do a CBC and a, and a CMP. I think for some I might get a thyroid. But really what you want to do is try to get an idea of what the possible medical problem is. So, I mean, if they're bradycardic, then you're going to look for hypothyroidism. You know, or, um, you know, you might think, could they be abusing drugs and they're denying maybe a drug screen on someone like that? Maybe not. Um, I think that um, I would ask other questions. I would try to get an idea if there's a family history of depression or bipolar illness. I would try to determine if there are any uh, stressors that may be causing them to feel depressed. Did somebody die? You know, are they? Uh, uh, is there something else going in their going on in their life that could explain why they're presenting like this today? Okay, that's a good point. And in this patient, uh, for a differential diagnosis of the acutely depressed patient, of course we have the medical disorders we just discussed. There's medications that can cause depression. And of course there's substance abuse and withdrawal, a huge source of people endorsing depression. Um, and then there's, the, in, in terms of the meds, of course not all that takes an antidepressant is depressed. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. People take antidepressants for things like pain, anxiety, OCD, smoking cessation. What have you seen in your practice that has caused depression but wasn't depression? Um, so some of the things that, that I've seen in my practice that causes depression, 
So you can see some folks with cancer that may have not been diagnosed. You can see someone who does abuse drug or alcohol that is depressed because they may have stopped their drugs or alcohol. Um, and then um, you have some not as common medical problems like hypothyroidism causing it. Um, they may have started a new medication that caused it. So kind of what we discussed just a few minutes ago uh, and I've seen in my, in my practice. Very good. So let's talk about the patient, the suicidal patient that has made an actual attempt. So they, they, whether or not they openly endorse their SI, they've been brought in because they made some sort of attempt. 70% of the time, it's an ingestion attempt by the numbers. Is that correct? Yes. And almost everyone, um, because almost everyone who, who attempts with a firearm succeeds, and that becomes a trauma case, and, and we may stabilize, and, and that would be about it for us. A lot of the time, most of the time, our SI patients with an attempt are ingestion patients. And 50% of the time, even if the ingestion isn't the agent of the intended demise of the patient, there's, there's an agent on board, often more than one agent on board. And we just discussed the number one agent, of course, is alcohol. Number two is opiates. And number three is cocaine. And this is, the number, this is sort of the number three cause of death overall in adolescence right now. So let's say we get in a patient, made an attempt. Um, what's the workup after we've stabilized this patient? So... Someone that came in with a suicide attempt, um, the first thing you want to do is when they come into the emergency department is to make sure that they have a safe environment and that uh, they're not going to reattempt it while they're in your emergency department because that's a really bad day if they um, jump out of a window while they're in the ED, they elope while they're in the ED, they take, and this has happened to me before, where they've drunk in a bottle of uh, betadine because they wanted to complete their suicide, and that's, they, and that's what they were looking for in the ED, and they found something that they could take, although it didn't do them in, but it was problematic all the way around. So um, I've had those experiences. I had another patient who was restrained with all four restraints, and this was a time when they could keep their clothes on. They had overalls on. They went into their top pocket and lit the curtains on fire. I was working a midnight shift, and all of a sudden the fire department's running through the ED. What's going on? I didn't even know because it was in an adjacent room. Um, and that's another problem of putting patients in rooms where they're not observed. And this was years ago where you could restrain them and you didn't have to have one-to-one -one observation. So, in fact, this patient lit the curtains on fire, it set off the fire alarms, and she was burned secondary to that. So... Um, so anyway, the first thing we want to do is make sure that patient's safe. So we're going to bring them in a room, we're going to put in an appropriate room, and don't forget that they will, if they're still thinking about suicide, they may be scanning the room for weapons or things they can use as a weapon to kill themselves. They're looking for somewhere to hang themselves off a, a a fixture or a door or something like that. Um, so we need to be very careful with those people that we're actually protecting them and making sure they don't run out. That was another problem that I had that an admitted psych patient decided they didn't want to stay and ran out the fire exit and people ran after him. Uh, 
So those are the kind of things that we're concerned about. So the first thing is maintaining their safety. The second thing is to assess whether they have a medical problem that's causing or exacerbating um, their suicide attempt. And um, then the, the third is to get them into the right place. And those with suicide attempts usually need to be admitted to the hospital. Um, although it may depend on was it a suicide gesture? Did they really? It was it just a teenager who was having a fight with their boyfriend or girlfriend, and just wanted them wanted attention, wanted to get back together with them, whatever. So that's where we have to be the detective in emergency medicine to decide whether do they take a lethal dose? Did they really want to hurt themselves? Was this just a, a way to manipulate the their their uh, significant other or what? I think that the hardest thing that we have in emergency medicine is not the cold suicidality in your example. That was very cold. I mean, when you, everyone would say, that patient's trying to commit suicide. The ones that we have the most trouble with are the ones that don't come in saying, I want to kill myself, but did something that could be a high risk for uh, suicide. One car accidents, they drove into a tree. They wanted to die, but if you don't ask them, they're not going to tell you. They're on the roof, they fall off, they break their arm. Well, why were you on the roof? Did you want to kill yourself? Or are we just focused on their arm? So, or someone that took an overdose. Why did you take the overdose? Did you want to kill yourself or did you just want to relax tonight? Whatever. So we don't do so well on being suspicious about every patient that comes in with some odd behavior trying to say, is this patient suicidal or not? And is that why they did what they did? It's even harder to address those that came in with something else that, but are really wanting to hurt themselves. And we see that, um, you know, what, what, I, what I would call well-hidden suicide agenda. And I, don't ex and I don't think that we all can screen every patient that comes in the ED for this occult suicidality but I do think if they come in with an unexplained injury or accident or overdose, we've got to ask that question. And the studies have proven that by asking them if they're suicidal does not make the suggestion that they're going to kill themselves when they leave. That does not happen. Very good. So whether or not the gesture is obvious in and of itself, whether it's somewhat occult or they, they made a very obvious gesture, left, left a note, we still have to order tests for these patients. So please talk to me about the routine tox screen and electrolytes, acetaminophen levels, and the ECG for these patients. Good question. So I kind of put these patients in the category with all other psych patients. A, a psychiatric patient that has normal vital signs, normal history and physical exam, they're presenting with the same problem they had the last time, they're psychotic, they have schizophrenia, they're depressed, they have depression, um, they're bipolar, they have a personality disorder, whatever, they have that same presentation again, and there's nothing else going on with them. You know, they didn't get hit by a car, they didn't get shot on the way over to the ED, they don't need testing. They do not need testing. They don't need a drug, a urine drug screen. They don't need blood alcohol. They don't need electrolytes. They do not need a CBC. Same presentation again, normal vitals, normal physical exam. Now, of course, if they have an abnormal physical exam, abnormal 
Vital signs, yeah, you've got to explain that. And you can't just explain it by saying they're anxious. Now, we talked about new onset. That's a whole different ballgame. Those patients do need significant testing. Now, where do you end this significant testing, I think is the other part of your question. And um, it's interesting because I think it's reasonable to get an EK, uh, a CT scan of a head on uh, someone with new onset. Uh, I think that in older people, we need to expand our uh, testing, like thyroid, maybe a troponin on an elderly patient looking for uh, an occult MI, because that can cause depression in the elderly. Um, so we want to um, throw out a bigger net for older patients. Now, the question is, could this be a temporal lobe seizure, and should we be getting EEGs in the emergency department? Well, the problem is there's no good study that's demonstrated that the value of doing EEGs in the ED. However, um, there was one study that looked at patients and they, they got a small, who came in agitated, who came in with psychiatric complaints, and uh, there was a small number of those patients who had abnormal EEG findings. So again, so, so what does that say? That says to me if I have a new onset and I've looked at all my routine and I still can't explain why they're doing what they're doing, they may need to be medically admitted and continue the work up upstairs. I have not gotten an EEG in the emergency department as of yet, but there is some mini EEG machines and there are some new protocols that maybe one day we will be doing that. Just not sure about that yet. Um, and that wouldn't be my first choice. Temporal lobe seizures, isolated without other, you know, just uh, emotional change without any other symptoms, it happens, it's fairly rare. Um, I would look for other things first. Okay, and really briefly about things like Tylenol levels. Some people advocate always getting a Tylenol level on someone who's made an attempt, you never know what they took, everyone gets a Tylenol level on an e ECG, what do you think? Okay, so for the suicidal suicidal patient, um, would I get a, a um, acetaminophen at salicylate level and an EKG on all those patients? The answer is no. If the patient hung themselves, shot themselves, uh, cut their wrists, no. Unless I had a clinical indication to get it. Now, that's different than what's taught in poison cases. So if, if someone comes in with a poisoning or an overdose, the um, possibility of polydrug overdose is very high, and so it is reasonable to get a acetaminophen and salicylate level on overdoses. Um, but I can't say the same for suicidal patients that aren't overdoses, and I'm not sure I've seen any correlations with or any value in doing routine um, drug levels. Okay, so now we get to the sticky part where we're dis we want to discuss with friends and family what we believe just occurred. And some of the patients may or may not be willing to disclose their situation, but for the patient's own safety, if we think they might want to go home, we have to be able to assess their level of social support to determine the dispo. How do you handle the sticky situation where you have a patient who isn't 
willing or desirous of giving permission to discuss what you think just occurred, and yet you think they should be okay to go home if only their family can watch them? I would probably change the question a little bit. All right. You have an adult. Mm -hmm. So all bets are off if they're under 18 yeah. in every state. If they're over 18 and they come in with a psychiatric illness and you're thinking about sending them home, and you want someone to know about it so that they can watch them or monitor them or whatever, um, the first thing you're going to do is ask permission. And if the patient doesn't want to give permission, then to me that's a red flag. Because if they don't want to give permission for someone to monitor them, then maybe I shouldn't be sending them home. So, you know, I try to um, think about it in context. Now, it's different if, if I want to send a patient home, then I will talk to friends, family, whatever, support, um, and make sure that they can do what I asked them to do. The other time I asked, I talked to family or friends without asking permission in a psychiatric patient is when I don't know what's wrong with them and I need collateral information. And I can't ask the patient who's too psychotic to say, I give you permission to talk to my family. I need to, I need to do what's best for the patient. I need to talk to, to their other care providers, um, maybe their group home, wherever, to find out what psychiatric illness they have, what problems they have, what they may have done or taken, or those kind of things. So I'm not so worried about um, getting permission in those cases. So case number three, this... Uh Case that always drives every one of us mad. We're probably going to have one a week, if not more. The somatoform, disappearing, reappearing, disappearing pain case. So we all know that pain of the mind can very easily become sort of pain of the body, which very rapidly becomes a pain in our rear end. Um, there are um, all kinds of things, though, that can really be present in patients like this. Um, and, you know, examples are depression, anxiety, endocrine disorders, MS, SLE, um, strange and bizarre and really rare things like Wilson's disease, uh, myasthenia gravis, Guillain-Barre. Um, if you're reasonably certain, though, that in this patient you are dealing with pain of the supratentorial type, um, want to talk to me about management of patient where you believe what's going on is truly supertentorial as opposed to physical and etiology, but they continue to endorse pain, pain, pain. What's sort of the, the approach to this patient? So we've already talked to the patient, we examined the patient, and we're confident that we can't find any physiologic reason for it, mm -hmm. especially in those that come in with this frequently and they have a chronic somatization disorder. Mm -hmm. um, so my approach to them is being up very upfront. Mm -hmm. and, and for some, that is an opportunity for them to start questioning whether this is really, they perceive it as physical pain. We think that it's not physical pain because we can't find a, a physiologic reason. Mm -hmm. We need to help them join that discordant opinion. We need to help them understand that it may not be physical, it may be mental, and there are ways we can treat someone that has 
the perception of pain with no etiology. And, you know, I always like to use, you know, the chemical imbalance in the brain, and we might be able to help that, and that's what causes the pain. And um, for some people, this is very effective, because most of these people, um, I mean, except for the ones that are doing it on purpose as a manipulation, that's a different group, um, don't realize they can get rid of the pain, and they want to be out of pain. And they're willing to try anything to get out of pain. And so I usually try to lay the seed that, hey, this is, you know, sometimes we see pain like this from the brain, and we can easily treat that. There are meds that will treat it, and your pain will be relieved. Um, but it's really important that you follow up, and you see the, you know, there be a psychiatrist, a therapist, whoever it might be. So I, I, I like to deal with it very much head, heads-on. Um, with them and, and try to um, develop that alliance with them. Now, for some, they're convinced that there's something physiologic and they'll go to the next doctor. Whatever you do, you're not going to change their opinion. And for some, just, you know, thinking maybe that's a possibility might help them down the road because maybe they will consider other treatments, or uh, we'll consider there are other etiologies for their pain. Now, what I thought you were going to ask me was, is agitation psychic pain? Is agitation psychic pain? We think so. Ask me in a few months, and I may have a better answer for you. Well, and the question is, you know, we ask patients about somatic pain all the time, right? And the Joint Commission, and Everybody says you've got to ask the patient if they're in pain. You've got to treat their pain right away. But do psych patients who are agitated, is that their way to express their pain? And should we be treating the pain with something, maybe not our usual customary pain meds, but maybe we should be reducing their agitation. And maybe that would make them have less psychic pain. So we'll see. Very good. I'm sure we're all looking forward to that. We already spoke a little bit about um, ketamine for the agitated patient and a little bit for the depressed patient. I'm curious if you use if you use ketamine now in your practice, and if so, for whom? Um, I have used ketamine in my patient. It is fairly rare right now to use it on the psych patient, um, but I actually want to start using it more. Okay. And when you do, what kind of patient do you feel is, is a good candidate? Who are you going to be looking out for as... Basically, any agitated patient that we need to get under control fairly quickly. Okay. And what, what doses are you going to start at? Just the lowest possible dose? Yeah, I'd go with the sub-anesthetic dose. Okay. And have you ever seen, in your practice, ketamine backfire? Have you ever given ketamine to a patient who was maybe a little agitated, difficult to deal with, and it pushed them over the edge? I think this is what we fear, because ketamine, of course, can work like magic. It can also work like black magic. Yeah. Well, I can't say I've seen it in my practice, but very interesting that you make this comment because there is a study that show that has demonstrated that sometimes giving antipsychotics makes the patient more agitated and not less. Mm. So there was a very interesting study where when a patient came in agitated, they gave them Haldol. And they were still agitated, so they gave them more Haldol, and they got more agitated. 
And so there was a subset of patients that actually got worse with their agitation and not better from Haldol. There were some other drugs they were giving too, but the big example was Haldol. So I think the take-home message from that article, as you were discussing with ketamine, is maybe if it's not working and they're getting more agitated, and, and in this study they weren't sure it was a uh, acathesia or some other kind of idiosyncratic reaction to the medication, but my comment is that, hey, if it's not working the first time, let's try a different agent. Let's not keep giving the same one and wondering why they're not getting better. So your advice to the ED doc that tries the Haldol on the agitated patient with no good effect is switch meds. Yes. Switch meds right away. And yes. your favorite second choice right now is? Well, I don't... Years ago, I gave Haldol or Azepam like, you know, water, but these days I'm using the atypicals and, you know, the question is, where's Atasuk going to fill in? There you go. In that. So this next question is about long borders. So we all know there are people who board in the ED for days, sometimes days and days, and sometimes as long as a week. So maybe 10% of patients admitted for some psychiatric illness end up boarding in our ED for a whole week. Do you have any tips and tricks for dealing with these patients who, if they weren't acutely psychotic, depressed, and anxious before, may very well be after a few days boarding in the ED? How much time do we have? <laughs> I give a whole talk about dealing with psych borders. Right. But rather than going for an hour, I'll try to shrink it down to a couple of minutes. So the border qu question is a much bigger issue. So the first part is, what could we do to deflect those patients? Are all those psych patients that come to us appropriate for the ED? Or are they appropriate appropriate for a mobile crisis unit? Or are they appropriate for community mental health? Or are they appropriate for, um, there's some um, counties in Texas that have law enforcement working together with mental health and they go out and evaluate the patient and determine if they need an ED visit or not. Um, so, so that's the first question is, do we know what our community resources are? Have we worked with our community to determine who's appropriate for our ED or are there other resources that are appropriate for um, these patients? Is there a call-in center? Is there a crisis center? Is there a lifeline for these people in the community? So that's, that's before they get there. Once they're in RED, we do tend to do nothing. And they sit around and they get bored and they get agitated. And um, all, all I see is the patients getting medicated, medicated, medicated. And we do very little to deal with their underlying problem. So the first question is, should we be treating their underlying psychiatric illness? If they're depressed, should we start antidepressants? And if they're psychotic, should we start antipsychotics? I think the question there is very easy if they've taken them before and they stop taking, which we see in a huge number uh, of patients. So we should restart what they're on. And... The emergency doc saying, oh, I can't give them anything but Haldol lorazepam. I think one day we're going to have to get to that point where we actually treat the psychotic patient or mental health patient or behavioral emergency patient with psychotropic drugs, just like years ago we couldn't treat stroke unless the neurologist came to approve TPA or the cardiologist came in the acute MI to say, it's okay to give, you know, thrombolytics. 
Okay, so um, I think we're going to get to that point. We're going to have to start. Because I'll tell you, when I've started in, in the emergency department, I've had patients go home from the ED, stayed a day and a half in the ED because we couldn't get a psych bed, and, and in a day and a half she was turned around and could go home. So I don't know why we don't even consider that. Now, some will say, well, I'm not a psychiatrist. Okay, how about, how about your consultation liaison service? How about a psychiatrist that's on staff? And if you don't have that, how about telepsychiatry? Have them start the meds while they're in the ED. Why not? Okay, so that's one avenue for this. Um, and then lastly, um, the question is, how can we prevent them from coming back and getting readmitted? So we have drug compliance issues. So those patients that are not compliant to the meds, usually the schizophrenics, how about long-acting depot shots? So they don't, there's not an issue with them stopping their meds. And, and there are lots of things we can do to reduce the readmission of that psych patient. So that's one, hooking them up with good community mental health, with good psych in their, in, in their community if they don't have it. Again, telepsychiatry might be a way. Um, there are a number of studies that looked at actually doing treatment in the ED, um, whether it be mental health workers, psychologists, social workers, starting that process in the ED, and some of those patients could actually go home. Um, so I think in, there's a number of things we can do, and in some communities, and we're talking about starting this at Sinai in the fall, is a, a crisis stabilization unit where this, the behavioral emergency patient, the psych patient in the ED, after we've done the medical clearance, go to these, go to the um, crisis stabilization unit, get treated for 23 hours or less, and can go home. And we, they'll be staffed primarily by psychiatrists or mid-levels with psychiatric training, and we'll get them back on their meds, and we'll quickly hook them up with community resources and get, and get them discharged. And actually, in California, they've had tremendous success, and they're able to send about 70% of their patients home after a day or two of being in this stabilization unit. So they reduced psychiatric admissions significantly. Um, but the other part of this is, if we are going to send somebody home, we do great with giving them discharge instructions if they have, say, a bad cold or pneumonia. You know, take your medicine. If you get short of breath, come back. Well, what do we do for the psych patient we send home? Take your medicine, goodbye. You know, but really what we should do is be working with them on a safety plan, what to do if they escalate or they have a crisis at home, connect them with Lifeline or other phone numbers that they can call 24-7 um, to make available, you know, maybe they need to go to a drop-in center or uh, some other um, crisis uh, respite centers, you know, and we don't do a great job connecting them with other community resources so they don't have to come right back to the ED. And the instructions we give them really should be focused on um, that same kind of mindset of let's help them find the resources in their community that so, will help them uh, not have to come back. So it sounds like a valuable thing to have in the ED is special discharge instructions for that class of patients that already has pre-filled out the information. Maybe get the information from the social worker, put it in a special set of discharge instructions that you can just have around and hand to the patient. You know, it's easy enough to go to up-to-date 
and print out for the patient copies of how to deal with wound care, pneumonia, you know, dislocations, but I don't know of any preset instructions for, you know, you've been here for your anxiety, you've been here for your depression, you've been here for your psychosis, now you're going home, here are your resources. So it sounds like that might be a valuable thing. Well, and here at Sinai, what we do have is we have a referral sheet for um, patients that have substance use disorders. So all the referrals, um, the AA programs, Spanish, English, we give them the sheet. We have one for um, uh, patients who are victims of violence, and we make referrals. We have, pay we have one for suicidal patients where we give them referrals in the community for psychiatric um, support services. Um, so we pretty much already do that, um, but it was something we had to add on to our usual and customary um, discharge instructions so we could give them much more than we would have, we did in the past. And the psychiatric sort of OBS unit that you guys are setting up to stabilize patients in mental health crisis, that's also something you've had to add on and it's going to be starting this fall? Yes, we're planning on somewhere four to five beds in our um, south campus mm -hmm. um, where we'll do the initial medical clearance and right after that they'll start getting managed by the psychiatrists and we'll get them right back on their meds and connect them to the community resources and hopefully within 23 hours most of them will go home and those that don't will get admitted to a psychiatric unit. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. This has been EM Basic with Dr. Les Zun at Mount Sinai Hospital in Chicago talking about psychiatric emergencies.